Hey, and welcome to episode six of Mind to Make. I can't believe it's already episode six. It's been six weeks of releasing these shows. I hope that uh, whoever's listening is appreciating the content that's coming out of them. Uh, in the background right now, you're getting a little tease, a bubble tease, in fact, from the group Koreatown Acid off of the Cosmic Resonance label, which is co-run by Mr. James Harris, who I'm speaking to in this episode. Uh, we sit down and we talk uh, to James, a.k.a. Hemingway, about his beginnings in music and how he got interested, uh, the online community that helped support him, uh, releasing his music publicly, and some of the happy accidents that occurred along the way. Um, we get into the very real and very deep trauma that he experienced um, and how that helped to shape who he is today. Um, we talk about how discipline, family, uh, the online and his local community helped him overcome some of those challenges associated with that event and, and what's come out of it, including his, uh, his label, Cosmic Resonance. Um, we talk a bit about meditation, neuroplasticity, and we get into what it is about vinyl that can teach us about the past, the present, and the future. If you're in Toronto, uh, you can look out for events featuring James and a slew of other very talented people at his night Astral Projections, which I'll, uh, I'll link to in the show notes. Um, just to note that I apologize for the quality of the audio in this interview. I'm still kind of working out the kinks on doing location recordings, but uh, hopefully you can bear with me on that. Anyway, without further ado, I bring you my interview with Mr. James Harris, a.k.a. Hemingway, on Mind to Make. All right, so I'm here with James Harris, a.k.a. Hemingway. I usually start off with asking people how they got their start in what they were doing. So if, can you give me some background about um, how you yeah. got started in music? Well, I started at a very early age, kind of grew up in a musical family. My dad had like a studio set up when okay. I was growing up. And to me, that was sort of like a playroom. Uh, you know, he had like electric pianos and these old synthesizers that he had built like back when he was studying at York in the 70s and uh, you know lots of little gizmos and from there I you know just started experimenting and then uh, we moved to a horse farm uh, sort of out in the boonies of uh, Georgetown and I didn't have high-speed internet like a lot of other kids my age and or video games or anything like that um, but my sister had an iMac with GarageBand on it. Okay. And, you know, we still had some of this music here. And I just kind of fell in love with playing around with loops and making, you know, as many different types of music beats that I could. And found this community online. I think it's still going uh, called MacIdle.com. Okay. And that was sort of the first taste of. Uh, a music community like I, I wasn't into the punk scene like Georgetown it was all you know punk kids throwing parties at like legion halls and churches and you know a lot of my friends were were into that but like I wasn't very much a musician that was more just kind of making the beats and wasn't very good at the keys okay but uh you so know, you had I not studied at tried. all you sort of were self-taught or 
I took lessons um, at a very young age with um, an older woman that you know really was by the book. It was very kind of strict. Rudiments. Rudiments. Yeah. Uh, you know, classical pieces, which I'm not averse to, but at the time I just I wasn't disciplined enough, and I or interested enough in that sort of uh, path. Yeah, I share that um, experience as well. And then I, I kind of dabbled again with lessons later on in high school. Uh, it's my sister's friend who lived up the street from me, um, conveniently mm. taught piano lessons okay. and did a more open format thing where you know she taught me songs that I wanted to play, um, and it was more at my pace mm. than like the book's pace. Right. Uh, so I kind of got a basis from there, but I still hadn't really played in any bands or anything. Mostly just jammed with like my dad okay. and uh, made these tracks in GarageBand. Um, but back to Mac Idol, I started posting more and more tracks and getting feedback. And I think, you know, when you start as an artist and like when you think you're Music's good. Yeah. Uh, and you just, you're stuck in this subjective bubble. Yeah. Um, getting like actual feedback from people who have been at it for a while was, you know, very humbling. Yeah. Um, and I just learned, okay, well, uh, I need to do better. And like, I just sort of kept at it. And by the time I was at um, university, uh, diving into York film school, I got more into this uh like the blog scene mm. which uh and what what year would this have been around this was 2006 okay um and the whole idea of remixing was kind of fresh to me at that point and uh all these remixes um you know were just getting posted i'm sure you remember the days of like disco dust and yeah all, all these different blogs and it was kind of it was cool to me because these bedroom musicians were able to get their music out there mm. to the masses mm -hmm. uh, and have it reviewed and everything without actually like doing proper public releases. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them did get releases, but I guess like my goal at that point was like, okay, I want to make it on disco dust. I want to like <laughs> remix a popular song and um, conveniently... My university went on strike and uh, that was in second year. And uh, I was engrossed in the film world, holding boom mics, making Super 8 films. Nice. They, they started us from the bottom. Okay. We used these Steambeck editing machines uh, where you, you know, you're actually cutting and splicing and putting together film reels, which was super cool. Yeah. And uh, I was, you know, engrossed in sound design as well. And um, the university went on strike for three months, okay. which was bothersome for a lot of people. Sure, yeah. Um, me as well, but it was, I just had all this free time and I was like, well, you know, I got to do something with it. And I just really like tried my hardest to, to remix and, you know, make good music. Yeah. I was using like, reason at the time and 
I didn't know a damn thing about mixing. I was <laughs> like redlining, you know. So at that point, it was all, it was like the loudness wars and, yeah. uh, you know, I, I was in party mode and I was, I was wanting to make more bangers. Now yeah. I'm making like smooth jazz. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> you could see the how time changes you. But yeah, um, yeah and then uh, I guess I started uh, posting more of my work and the blogs kind of picked up on it. And, uh, and I was just like, okay, well, People like it. This is great. I want the next one to be even better. And, you know, that uh, motivation of just trying to outdo your last work mm -hmm. uh, was very driving and helpful for me um, because, you know, I was never happy. I was never like satisfied. And I'm still never know. What is fully that, satisfied. Right? But interestingly, like going back to some of the older demos, it was freer. There was less, you know, concern or like self-criticism about mm -hmm. the mix and, and that sort of thing. And I often revisit old ideas like uh, Memoirs, the record that I put out. There's, you know, like a track on there that's seven years old that... I just like dug up, completely forgot about, mm. and was like, "Oh, this is you know, this is pretty good." Yeah, like the mix is kind of slammed, but yeah. like I still want to put this out. It's workable, and yeah. it's more the ideas yeah. there. And I think now, like it's all this lo-fi house and stuff coming out. Like I, I'm not, I'm not as concerned about the mix or like mix perfection because I don't really know what that is. Yeah, it's, you know. It's completely subjective. Yeah. Um, There's like a famous Picasso quote where he says something like, it took me, you know, so many years to become like a master. And then it took me like my entire life to paint like a child, which essentially was him saying yeah. like, you know, to find the freedom to just be wantonly creative and really express yourself without having to think about all that other noise, you know, about how is, how is it presented and, what you know? What's the relationship to this, and what's the idea, and just to really just express yourself in a very guttural way, or whatever you yeah, want to call it. Yeah, it's like it. a state of play. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's yeah. it's not work. You're lost in the moment, mm -hmm. and often, yeah, the best ideas come from that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's I, I think that's around the time that uh, that I met you that we yeah. play, we played a show together. Uh, I was super impressed by what you were doing. You had you oh, had had thanks. a setup with like a laptop setup and like a small controller. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like you were doing maybe originals and mixing some stuff in with it. Maybe like an Ableton setup or something like that. Yeah, um, I think I was using Tractor at that point. Okay. I didn't get into Ableton until a little bit later. Okay. Um, yeah, it was crazy how much I used Reason. Make tracks and looking I didn't, back, yeah, it's like, it was a huge influence. It's very comp for me. like complicated as far as like all the routing and the <laughs> yeah, patching, yeah. but, uh, but that was very to me, powerful. That to me was like the the fun part about it. Yeah, like when yeah. I first got into it, it was like you know it was it was it, you know you were getting all of those um, 
modeled synthesizers. You had like mm-hmm. the 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 Moog uh, modular, you know, Arturia had come out with that, and you had like the ARP twenty six hundred, and it was yeah. like. I mean, you're right. It was sort of com- it's it's still a sort of cumbersome that dragging of the mouse to like you know make a patch between two things. But I think there was something. This probably inspired a lot of people in the early days of synthesis too. It's just that ability to be like, I'm going to plug this cable into here, Let's see what and happens. maybe it's going to blow yeah. up, or maybe it's going to come up with like the best sound ever. <laughs> Even if you have a basic idea of, yeah. of synthesis and you kind of get what's going on, you know, you could still play. Again, it's like playing with, with absolutely. Those things. Yeah, you have these happy accidents. Yeah, exactly. I still do that to to this day of just opening up some like forgotten plugin and changing routings and just messing around and yeah those yeah. happy accidents are like i think the key to a lot of my music yeah or um you know lately i'll just have long solo jam sessions kind of meditative or it's just me headphones dark room yeah the keys yeah and um you know i'm not like trained in scales or anything like that but i think i've de- developed my year well enough over the years to sort of hear what I want to hear in mm-hmm. my head. And when I'm just kind of noodling around, I'll, I'll like come across juxtapositions that work, you mm-hmm. know, or like a chord that I wouldn't necessarily think of playing, but I'm just lost in the moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, even when making tracks, to me, it's very therapeutic. Oh, yeah, for sure. I totally meditative. share that. Absolutely. Um, you know, like to I a jam- point, if yeah, you're yeah. on a deadline, then it's not there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And <laughs> you're like, fuck. Yeah. But uh, generally, when you know you're, you have all these side hustles, like I'm, I'm working as an event server, and I'm like doing this assistant DJ gigs, and like trying to run a record label, and when I actually get time to sit down and, and create, it's like it's great. Yeah, it's therapy. It's therapy. Yeah. I'm very interested in the idea of sort of process and work and mm-hmm. how and the idea of work and kind of this um, this basis that helps support the rest of what you do going forward like do you think having that sort of basis that that initial time to explore to play to you know find kind of the things that you like and that you don't like have given you a better ability to kind of now sit and say okay like let's try this or i have these things that i know i want to do do you, do you go in with processes or do you generally still kind of go okay let's just dial up something and see what sounds cool and maybe i find something that i like I think, well, it's sort of a yes and no answer because I've just exposed myself to like so much more music. Mm. And with that, the bar has been set higher. So, you know, I have to set my own bar a little bit higher. Right. But I'm always winging it every time. There's never really a process. I know a lot of people have sort of a set template of like, this is the EQ I use, mm. the presser and everything for it's always different for me. Like I have, you know, favorite tools and things like that, but the actual writing process, it's usually 
maximalism, like I will try as many different sounds and things and see how they in, interact and see how these moments juxtapose and then come back to it and reduce and reduce some more mm-hmm. until it's, you just kind of sculpt out a song. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I find that process works pretty well. Sometimes it's more the minimalism approach where I'm just like, okay, what can I do in the least amount of things mm. to make the sound good? You know, like it's always a different journey, mm. but over time I've just, I've found shortcuts yeah. just to, to work faster and I, I'm able to write more quickly. I think like I, I can hear and process what I'm hearing on uh, the keyboard. Whereas before, you know, I was clicking and like, Dragging notes, mm. uh, and from playing in bands, uh, I've I've like really tried to work up that skill of ear training and being able to actually name the chords that I'm like <laughs> <laughs> writing, you know, and having to communicate with musicians that are like far more experienced than me that have like gone to music school, um, like Chris, for instance, uh, label partner. He went to Humber. He's you know. He speaks the language. Yeah. For me, I'm. I speak the very bare bones of the language. Yeah. I'm like a foreign exchange <laughs> right. student of music, but uh, I'm trying to learn more of the theory. There's, you know, so many resources out there. Yeah. But I'm not trying to learn it, like so perfectly, that it takes away the fun. Mm. I think the kind of problem with a lot of these music school grads they're you know becoming jobbers is like it's it sort of takes away a bit of the enjoyment of like those discoveries mm-hmm. when uh they just know everything by the book so well you know like you know that you're gonna go from here to here that's the transition or that's what's most common so that's what i'm gonna kind of yeah. gravitate towards like it's it's the same with film school now i'm like way more critical movies than I used to be mm-hmm. as like a teenager so I get less enjoyment like yeah I still get enjoyment in cr- critiquing but it's um the more you know sort of sometimes the less fun you have <laughs> yeah yeah uh maybe there's a point where you'll reach where you kind of know enough again that you can sink back into yeah you know musical ignorance is bliss yeah <laughs> not not any other aspect of that'll life. be the quotable yeah. for, for the interview <laughs> In terms of let's maybe talk about that a bit, because um, you're now you're playing in a band. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you played in a couple different bands, but the one you're currently playing with, Tush, yep. band out of Toronto. Can you tell me a bit about the band and um, your role in it, and a yeah. little more about that? So uh, Tush kind of evolved out of um, the Beam Me Up night, which uh, is run by um, my good friend Mark Penner, cyclist. 
yeah. sort of reached out to me. And uh, I was just, you know, like finished up being in this kind of honky tonk jug band okay. called Scoop Trumbull and the Wrong Notes. Okay. Uh, which was, you know, not very me, but <laughs> uh, a very good learning experience. Uh, in what way? Well, in just challenging myself to learn a different genre of music and playing with um, Scoop, as he's known, Ty Trumbull. He's a great banjo player. Um, my downstairs neighbor, Duncan, uh, he's been a musician like his whole life, and I'd always hear him jamming, and that sort of just evolved out of me jamming with him. And he was like, oh, you want to be in this band? And I was like, well, I've never really been in like a proper band. Mm -hmm. But they're like, but we need a keyboardist. So, you know, learning songs with other people was very helpful. And we got pretty regimented. Like we had a regular residency at the Cloak and Dagger okay. on College Street. Yep. Played every other Sunday and did a lot of shows. Um, but, you know, the more I realized it, I was like, oh, this is pretty different from what I usually write and like what I'm into. But mm -hmm. I'm not against it. Like I'm glad I went through that experience because mm -hmm. uh, just I learned how to perform doing so many shows yeah. in like backyards and basements and weird locations, lugging gear, you know, I just kind of enjoyed that lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, so going back to Tush, uh, Scoop moved to Mexico, the band was done. Okay. Um, I was looking for a new project and I'd been jamming with uh, Chris in this band Mannerisms, run by Dean Wills, which is still going. Mm -hmm. But uh, Mark reached out to me and he was like, hey, we're you know, forming this disco funk band. Uh, do you want to come out and audition? I was like, I've never auditioned <laughs> for a band. I just left this band. Yeah, and it's like, whoa, I don't know if I could do this, but it's like, well, you know, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. And uh, went in, auditioned at Geary, the rehearsal factory, and... I was like, oh, this is cool. This is just like rhythm. Mm. It's a rhythm band. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, sort of the extent of what I can do in the keys. It's like, I'm more of a rhythmic player than like a flashy classical player that's doing all these fancy runs. Like, I enjoy doing less and being part of the groove with very good rhythm players right. that are accompanying. So it's like, even if I fuck up, <laughs> still sounds good. Like, so I went and auditioned. Uh, they liked me, and you know, Mark and I had already been friends for a while. Remix each other's tracks. Yeah, little nepotism never. Any <laughs> little nepotism, yeah. Um, but it took off, and we sort of disbanded from Beam Me Up. Um, yeah, we went through a lot of terrible name ideas, but Tush really stuck. Uh, you know, it's really hard nowadays to find like a singular noun yeah. name for a band because yeah. they're almost all taken. But I think Tush uh, is a good name for us because it's, um, we're, we're all about like sexual empowerment and freedom and creating safe spaces for people to dance. Mm. Um, and uh, our lead singer, Camila, she's like a force of nature. Oh my she's, gosh, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Really incredible. And it's been, um, like a pleasure to work with her is everyone in the band comes from very different 
backgrounds musically, but they're all very experienced, like Jamie Kidd, mm-hmm. uh, you know, seasoned producer and uh, DJ. I think I'm the least experienced <laughs> in the band, and it's been like boot camp for the yeah. past two years. Yeah. But uh, it's been great. And yeah. learning covers um, has also kind of pushed me musically and has sort of opened up some doors um, like musically uh, and you just learn new ways of playing songs mm. based on recordings mm-hmm. um, I've, I've just found that writing has come easier interesting I'm not really following like YouTube tutorials or anything like it's like I'm listening to the song and I'm trying to meticulously chart out what each note is the arrangement Often they're like vinyl rips that are like <laughs> slightly out of tune, so <laughs> right. I have to go into Ableton and retune them. Yeah, um, but that whole process—it's uh, been a lot of fun, and you know, we're just starting to branch into originals. And uh, yeah, we have two that we recorded at the Root Down Studio that are demos. But like, I'm hoping we release them soon because yeah. they're. Uh, they're sounding pretty tight. Coming from that sort of solitary production background, you know, like what other kinds of things have you learned from or taken away from other than your playing from being part of a group of people who are all sort of, you know, working towards that? Well, yeah, the collaborative element has helped me immensely. And you're right. I was very much a hermit in yeah. my own little cave. Um, and you have to be able to take criticism mm. and learn how to compromise. And I think that's like just the best skill in life <laughs> yeah. in general, not even music, but yeah. like learning how to compromise where, you know, so everyone is happy and on board. Uh, it's, it's taught me, you know, a lot of empathy and a lot of um, just self-discipline. Yeah. And I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot more. Like I've, trying to collaborate as much as I can with as many different artists. Yeah. That's part of the reason um, why I started the Astral Projections Party. I'm trying to, you know, meet as many people in the scene and work with them. Yeah. If I can. Yeah. So that's definitely it's helped me a lot. But that I wanted to discuss. Can you talk a bit about your ABM experience? 
Okay, it's a can of worms. It's a can of worms, but I would love to open it. I think it could be yeah. really beneficial to anybody that's that's listening. Um, you know, just in terms of you know having huge life experiences that could completely change your life and mm-hmm. and how you how you kind of went through that process and if at all how it's informed what you're doing now and what you've you know how it's changed you. Yeah, well, it's changed me physically. I am now permanently blind in my lower left side, uh, which has made playing more of a challenge than it used to be because I can only see one hand at a time. Oh, right, okay. Um, I also don't drive anymore right. and you know, basically have to watch out uh, in big crowds. Mm-hmm. Can you give um, people an, uh, just a bit of a background of what it is, what happened? And- yep. So I was about to go on tour with the country band, okay. Scoop Drum on the Wrong Notes. We're going to do this big East Coast tour. We had just finished a show, which was like a week before we were going to leave. And uh, I was carrying my keyboard up the stairs to my apartment. And I got this terrible, what is known in medical terms as a thunderclap headache, mm. which I think is you know a poetic way of putting because it, it, it was very painful. And um, I had just kind of shrugged it off as a migraine at the time. Um, and went to bed and took a bunch of Tylenol. I woke up the next day and I noticed that, you know, part of my vision was missing. And I did what every concerned human does on the internet. They go to WebMD, they look up their symptoms. And uh, I thought it was something wrong with my eyes. Maybe this was like a retinal migraine, Hmm. which is a thing. And uh, temporary blindness is one of the symptoms. But this didn't go away mm. for the whole day. I went to the walk-in clinic and um, they prescribed me these like anxiety meds, which I, I was kind of disappointed with. Yeah, I was I like, okay, so. uh, I don't think I'm getting the right uh, diagnostic here. So I went back the next day, even more concerned because the blindness was still there. Mm. And I had done more research and I was like, this must be neurological. Hmm. Like, there's something going on. And uh, I went to the clinic. I was like, hey, um, I don't need these anxiety meds. Like, I think there's something more serious going on. Can I go see an ophthalmologist just to rule out whether it's with my eyes? And like, oh, well, there's this guy, but like, you have to book like two weeks in advance. And hmm. I'm just like, I'm, I need to go now. Like, hmm. where's the office? And so I went basically went to the front desk and I was like, I have a serious issue. I recently gone blind in this lower left side. Do you have any openings? And like, sure enough, one patient canceled and Mm -hmm. I managed to get in there and got a free prescription out of it, which is nice. (laughs) Uh, But the ophthalmologist was like holding up his fingers and like asked me to count them. And I was like, I can't see your fingers. Mm -hmm. And he was like, okay, well, this is a neurological problem. You need to go to the emergency room immediately. Yeah. And thank God for uh, for him telling me that because I didn't really know. Like I was, was hoping it would just go away. Yeah. But uh, so I waltzed into Toronto Western Hospital in the emergency room and uh, they took me into kind of the stroke ward asked me all these 
um, unnerving questions like, you know, where are you? Uh, what year is it? Has anyone in your family died young? That was probably the most unnerving. Mm. <laughs> and uh, they did a quick CAT scan and found that I had this tumorous mass in my right occipital lobe, uh, which is sort of the back right part of your brain. And uh, they said it was an AVM, which I had no idea, you know, was a thing, mm. uh, which stands for arteriovenous malformation. It's a congenital defect oh, okay. um, that is most often discovered morbidly enough in the morgue. Like a lot of people don't even know they have it mm. and uh, it could hemorrhage. But it's basically your veins get tangled over time and form this sort of ball and uh, it can rupture. And so it happened to me, it, it ruptured, which caused that insane headache and it was bleeding out on my brain. Mm. And uh, thank God I, I went in when I did that, because, yeah. you know, I I could have died. Yeah. It was it was pretty serious. Yeah, and <laughs> it was very serious. So they embolized it and they kind of glued the laceration shut. I had the option of either having this radiation treatment called, uh, it's like the gamma ray, where it's a focus beam radiation that's supposed to shrink the tumor down over a period of like three years. But, you know, there's risks with any radiation. Mm -hmm. uh, the other option was craniotomy, where, you know, cut open and remove the AVM and but that had also a higher risk of my vision worsening. Mm. But it would basically solve the problem and I wouldn't have to worry about it. So that was a tough decision, but I, I went with craniotomy and uh, that surgery kept getting delayed and delayed. Yeah, um, I remember seeing that. You were supposed to go in. Yeah, I remember being all wired up, my whole family by my side, like, ready to face the worst, you know? And uh, they have like a whole hierarchy with the emergency room, which totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then they ended up pushing it back to uh, the fall. And uh, I was in for another two weeks. They did the surgery. Luckily, at the Toronto Western Hospital, they have um, one of the best teams of neurosurgeons in North America. Like, Oh, okay. That have dealt with a lot of AVMs. So that was reassuring. huge reassurement. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, recuperating from it, it was difficult. I basically finally got discharged. That it just felt like when you're stuck in the hospital and you're like constantly on morphine and like Oxycontin, your sense of time really gets elongated. And mm. it, it felt like I was in there for months. So anyway, fast forward, I'm back at home uh, with a lot of Oxycontin, <laughs> which is an interesting experience. Uh, it gives you the craziest dreams, like the most lucid. I'm not endorsing Oxycontin for <laughs> recreational use, yeah. but uh, it was like just my neurons were firing like a hundred times faster. Mm. Yeah, I was... I was just very grateful that, you know, I 
it was in my right occipital lobe and not in like a behavioral area of the mm. brain and very fortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of AVM patients have it way worse. They yeah. have to take like seizure medication on the regular. I still have these um, these kind of micro seizures where it's not like you're spasming and frothing at the mouth, but like it's more my vision will flicker and mm. uh, it looks like when you stare at the sun for too long and you have that kind of colorful glaze over your, your vision, which mm-hmm. is um, known as a scotoma. So I have that permanently. I don't even really notice it anymore. And um, I think I, I've adapted over time. Like it's, to me, I can kind of fill in the image, you know, without actually seeing it. Mm. Like I'm still getting the light in that kind of color information, but it's, you know, it just, it's hard to explain. Yeah. It's not like a black void or anything. It's just like there's nothing there. back home and when you had sort of started to get off of the oxy and sort of feel a bit more like yourself Mm -hmm. did you have like a new sense of purpose did you just sort of feel like well it's just great to feel like myself again or i i did have a new sense of purpose and i think i just held my life more dearly yeah um and just realized kind of how fragile to quote Sting, how fragile. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I just realized I, this isn't going to stop me from pursuing my dreams. Mm-hmm. And it gave me sort of a, a strength and more a bit more motivation and discipline. Like, well, if I can survive this, then, mm-hmm. you know, I can survive getting tossed around in the in the music industry, <laughs> right, or the real world, yeah. Um, and I was back to work after about a couple months. And, yeah. Um, getting like back on the keyboard was an adjustment. I still have, you know, difficulties, especially with the doing the left hand, right hand stuff simultaneously. Yeah. You realize like how much your vision helps you. Mm. Uh, and compensates even when you don't think it's actually doing anything yeah yeah and i i have problem like i had uh it took me a while to kind of train myself to be extra cautious in a, of my environment mm. i remember like getting off the streetcar and like going to the subway and i like put my bag on and ended up elbowing a woman in the face uh and she thought i was like assaulting her <laughs> okay and she was like yelling at the police and I was like, no, I'm so sorry. And I was like, so embarrassed. And sure. It's like, okay, I got to be extra careful. Yeah. And, you know, learn how to scan my environment. Yeah. Um, it's, it's amazing to me how quickly I've, I've learned how to adapt 
And I think that's the power of the brain and like neuroplasticity. Mm. Like people that experience these hardships just learn how, how to, to make it work for them. And yeah. guys like Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles have been like blind their entire lives, like kill it. Yeah. You know? like, yeah. I, so I have no excuse. <laughs> yeah. So I can't help but think that there may be some link between cosmic resonance and all of those ideas of maybe, you know, transcendental meditation. Yeah. Uh, your night is called astral projections. Was that something that you were interested in before, or is that something that has come about as you become more interested in as a result of that? Um, I think it was partly a result of that. I, I had a little bit of interest. Like my dad um, was always into Taoism and meditation. And, okay. You know, I'd, I'd see him at like six in the morning, like wide-eyed, staring in his chair, meditating, and I was like, "Oh, that's that's pretty cool." And and you, you never know. had you never gotten into it up to up to that point. Yeah, not really. Um, but I've just, yeah, having gone through that kind of near-death experience has taught me to appreciate more like the people in my life. Mm. Um, you know, like just the support system of of all the friends and, and people that were like there for me at that time was mm-hmm. sort of mind-blowing to me. And um, and music has been this source of, like I mentioned earlier, like personal therapy and meditation, but I also think it's, it's, you know, one of the most powerful forms of expression, of getting your ideas across, mm-hmm. uh, even if it's experimental. And it's just um, like the whole cosmic resonance idea, you know, it's not like we're just trying to write cosmic space music but uh music itself is cosmic and people are are cosmic it's it's more so this idea of not being afraid to to express oneself and that's why we're trying to get more of these local artists out there and be like hey you have an opportunity Mm -hmm. to play you know like you don't need to worry about <laughs> what anyone thinks. Like, do art for the sake of art. Yeah, that to me, I think, was a big revelation. Mm. You know, not doing it for any like specific personal gain, but just doing it because we are all conduits in this world, mm-hmm. and it's important, I think, to express this universal language that you know. I, I can't really think of, of much else like beyond visual art and, and music and, and dance and that can be extrapolated universally from whatever mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you just get a glimpse of someone's soul, you know, and mm-hmm. it's all our lives are finite. And this is sort of a way to, I'm hoping, you know, deep in the recesses of space like yeah. this music is is somehow making it out there uh but you know at the end of the day it's it just feels good to to kind of get something out there and have other people hear it and, yeah and with yeah the monthly it's it's more about cross-pollinating vibes getting people from different backgrounds and experiences and 
um, allowing them to learn from each other and but also you know build a network mm-hmm. like that support system mm-hmm. which um, you know like for me I that support system was kind of online like I had all these MySpace friends and you know like I consider you one of those friends yeah uh, for sure and you know we we really want people to be able to break out of their shells and just be themselves yeah without having um, the pressure it's external forces it's it's internal it's all you know Currently, I think there's a lot of pressure to, and we were talking a bit about this before, but the idea of branding and self-branding, Yeah, it forces you to look at yourself in a different way as opposed to just expressing your ideas in Absolutely. a very natural uh, natural way. Um, not that maybe it isn't helpful, but is it always helpful? In what ways and how do you kind of you know, navigate that whole system as well? Mm-hmm. Given that you've got this ability now through avenues like Bandcamp, SoundCloud, maybe to a lesser extent now. Yeah. How, how do you how do you find the experience of you know starting and running a label? Like, was it initially just kind of like, well, look, I'm definitely I'm invested in this music idea. I know mm-hmm. that I want to do it. I know that I want to involve more people. I've recognized that having this community is something that's beneficial to me, and I want to kind of share that with people. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, there are obviously logistical things uh, about running a label. You know. But but you guys are releasing. Uh, are you doing vinyl as well? Yeah, yeah you're doing so vinyl. you have the first two records are out there. We got um, distribution through Honest John's, which was very happenstance. They they kind of reached out to us. Oh, okay, I don't even really know how they found out about it, but uh, they were interested, and then we messaged them. Didn't hear back right away, and we just like we're like oh we gotta got to keep messaging them because <laughs> this is like an amazing resource. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I led, uh, the label evolved. Chris and I throwing these parties um, at like the Holy Oak and Handlebar, which we already were calling it Cosmic Resonance. Mm-hmm. And, and Chris had this uh, meditative podcast where it was just him improvising for an hour on the guitar and the synths and called that cosmic resonance but the whole idea of it uh it just felt like a suitable suitable name and approach for a label um and uh having spoken with jared quite a bit and being very inspired by good timing and you know he he was it was a struggle for him to get that off the ground like Getting vinyl pressed it was very expensive, and mm-hmm. right now, basically each record is funding the next record. 
Um, and we're hoping that will continue mm -hmm. and will be sustainable. But yeah, we, we kind of just made the jump for it. We're like, we need to do this. It's time. I had this backlog of music and I was like, oh man, you, you got to play guitar on, on some of these tracks. And, and after that, we're like, all right, well, we have a record. Let's, let's get it out there. Yeah. And, uh, and why go that? Why why go that route? Was just because it felt it just was sort of a synergistic kind of thing, or why go that route as opposed to trying to go say the you know going approaching labels, approaching somebody else? Why kind of go the DIY route with it? Well, the DIY approach to me was was just way more freedom, hmm. um, and also freedom for me to express my visual side. Hmm doing the artwork and the design, which is a big part of my life. I really love doing illustration and like yeah. trying to do more of it. Yeah. Um, but also I had tried to go that approach and I, I sent it to many labels I admired and everyone kind of said, oh, this is nice, but like, it's not really our vibe. And I was like, yeah, you're right. It's not. It's like, <laughs> this is our own vibe. It's our own thing. It's, and I like, that it's unique and we're, we're trying to keep it unique. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I like Jared's label, just seeing that he could do it and, and release his own music successfully and, and build this brand. It's like, yeah, I mean, we can do this. Like it's, it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of networking, but yeah. we had already done a lot of that networking by throwing these parties and um, we just kind of raised the money, got the first one pressed. Uh, and vinyl was like it's always been kind of a sign of legitimacy in my mind. Right. I've been releasing way too many tracks digitally, and like it would just gloss over. Like it wouldn't really get a whole lot of steam. Yeah, because uh, I don't know. People, we, we our I guess target market is people that appreciate records for listening yep. at home, but also DJs. Yeah. Um, so we want to kind of put out both formats. Yeah. Like Raph's record is, is a combination of both, a, you know, a dance floor, boogie funk record, but there's also some heady kind of ambient cosmicness yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, so that's sort of, um, I guess, the breeding grounds for us musically is like we want DJs to play it out, but we also want the uh, yeah. the heads, you know, like the, yeah. the heavy collectors yeah. to play it at home. At home. about you but the first time i got a record with a song of mine on it it and i don't know why this never occurred to me before but the the word record mm -hmm. all of a sudden had this meaning of like oh i've got a document of, yeah of a 
of a thing that I've made. The tangibility. I can, yeah, I can hold it in my hand and until like, you know, fire or whatever destroys the world, <laughs> yeah. if that, however that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, I've got it. I've got it here. I can give it to somebody else. Yeah. And the idea that like that document has the ability to kind of live through time, you know, it will... And I don't think I ever appreciated that about vinyl collection in the past. I think mm -hmm. because it has this sort of thing, especially since um, you know the internet age and discogs and that whole other subculture, mm -hmm. I feel like uh, there's some inaccessibility, you know. But but I really appreciated it when I had it, and not even for the for the um, fidelity or anything like that. Or you know, I, I still I, I do like listening to records. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like that that to me, I don't know if you, that resonates with you at all, but Absolutely. Yeah. Just being able to have a shelf yeah. of like these portals to magical musical worlds yeah, yeah. that like you can hold in your hand and being able to see the artwork and everything and, and reading liner notes, you know, yeah. it's just like way more uh it just puts you more in, in the mind of the creator and you cherish it more. Yeah. And I know. Like I, you I said the longevity of it, like just you know, like I, I only got into vinyl in, in the past couple of years. I was living with Raph, who you know has a massive collection, and I was like, okay, I need to buy a record player. <laughs> the CDs are done. Yeah, you know, like I, you know, I can't go out and well, I still I still DJed with a controller, but I was just yeah, like, oh. It's, it's not it's as fun, more, right? It's, it's not, not yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's something about I I did like a whole paper uh, on the differences between the two mediums and um yeah, there's something about that tangibility factor about being able to have full control over when something starts to play. I mean, it's more fun too for I think when you get away from the screen, it's again I feel there's a connection yeah, thing. Yeah. To be able to be like, no, I'm here, you're here, I can see what you're doing, I can look at you, you can look at me. Mm -hmm. And I'm not spending half of my time, you know, you, you still are looking at records, but I think you can involve your body more. There's a, yeah, there's a sort of a much more communal aspect to playing records. Yeah. Here. And it's, you're supporting the artists. You're showing your support. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, like it's so easy to pirate music these days. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll admit, you know, I was I was on Napster and LimeWire a little bit back in the day, but I was still like I was buying through Beatport, mm -hmm. and Juno, Download, and but I never really got the same feeling of excitement of like picking up a record and mm -hmm. wow, look, just look at this mm -hmm. and putting it on, and also I think the fact that you can't just skip ahead and it, it sort of forces you to appreciate albums as an art form mm -hmm. um, and EPs. And that's what I was setting out to do with memoirs was uh, have it more of a collective listening experience as each song sort of tells a story together versus, you know, like this is the single. This yeah. is yeah. B-side. Yeah. <laughs> Given that that's kind of, there's so much of that in terms of direction um, does it influence you? Like, do you think about it or do you just go, I don't care. This is my personal thing. I want to do it. And for all those reasons we've talked about, mm -hmm. um, do you sort of think that there's going to be 
uh, even outside of the realm of DJing, like a, a return to vinyl? I think it is coming back. Yeah. Having gone to like Sonic Boom and like June recently, like it's they're both very busy, like a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And for me, the the real fun is just going in without any knowledge of what you want to buy and flipping through a bunch of records, finding one that looks weird, throwing it on and finding maybe you know those one or two tracks that are like, oh, this is nuts. Yeah, and, I never expected you know, maybe, this from this band or yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that process of discovery is just like, it's so much more rewarding than just going. I mean, you can do it on YouTube too, but actually going in the store and sort of creating this mental encyclopedia of what's out there. Mm. You learn, you learn a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping like in 40 or 50 years, you know, the, the next generation of vinyl heads will come across some old dusty cosmic resonance record and be like, Oh yeah. But hopefully they won't sell it for some exorbitant like thousand dollar price on Discogs. Well, I think, I don't know. I think that's great for me. It was really great to talk to you about all this stuff, James. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks man. If you like what you heard on the show today and would like to support it, I would encourage you to go to my Patreon page and become a patron. Patrons will get access to exclusive content and can help decide which guests come on the show and what I ask them, as well as other rewards along the way. Support will enable the show to become bigger and better in many ways. There'll be a link to the page on both the Mind to Make website at www.mindtomake.com, as well as in the show notes in the description for the podcast. Thanks again so much for listening, and please tune in next time.